This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we have a guest this week. Who's here? I don't even know. It's it's Margaret. It's Margaret Willison Whoa. from Andrew's other podcast, Appointment Television. And I was really jarred when you said your intro, right? Because it's very similar to our intro, but it's not the same. Weird. What's your podcast about? Uh, our podcast is about the TV you want to make time for. That sounds like a cool premise. You guys have been yeah. doing it for a little while, huh? We have been. We have been. Almost five years, right, Andrew? Yeah, something like that. If it's not a fucking a wild amount that, of time. Yeah. Well, there we go. Wait, yeah, so if seal. you didn't couldn't tell from the explicit tag, Margaret's here. <laughs> Hide your kids. It's time for cursing. I'm sorry. Um, not not every week on the show do we curse, but when Margaret's here, we can't stop her. Uh, Andrew, how does our show normally work without every, cussing? Every week, one of us ri- reads. Every week, one of us rides here on a horse and then reads a book and then tells the other one about the book that they read. Yes. Um, and when we have a guest, it's the guest's job to read the book. <laughs> yeah. But who rode the horse? We all rode a horse. Different horses. I rode a okay. pony. Hmm. Margaret read a book, and it's what is it? The book. <laughs> That you read? The what? book that I read is um, by K.J. Charles, uh, and it definitely has a title, and has a title that I cannot remember accurately ever. I think it's an unseen attraction. Yes, an unseen attraction. Yes. Not the, not the unseen attraction, not unseen attraction. It is definitely an unseen attraction. Uh, I've typed it multiple ways across multiple forms of social media and deleted those posts when they were wrong. <laughs> Whoops. Um, this was That's a great way to honor my presence on the podcast. Yeah, this was a Patreon rec from one of our Patreon supporters, Emily, um, who said, I'd like to request an unseen attraction by KJ Charles, the first Sins of the City book. This is the first of a trilogy. Uh, mystery, male, male romance, Victorian pulp themes, and just a truly sweet peaceful and well-meaning central pairing plus taxidermy listening through your past romance novel episodes i thought something with a little more representation and less sketchy consent might be nice the third book in this series also features an extremely lovely portrayal of a non-binary person if you happen to get that far thanks for the wonderful podcast so that slaps i gotta read the third one i don't know i mean emily covered all our bases maybe we could all just go home (laughs) sometimes (laughs) that's how that works start doing small batch overdues yeah that are just one line and then we're out yeah and they're they're ethically they're ethically sourced in that we have other people do them for us Mm -hmm. responsible (laughs) and eco-friendly very responsible Mm -hmm. now margaret you had said when we when we said hey margaret come on our podcast and do our job for us you said i had actually been thinking about reading this author uh so what's the deal with that why do you know who kj charles is and why were you pumped to read this book So K.J. Charles is one of the, I mean, certainly one of the foremost queer love story writers of the present moment. But certainly just like, I really like historical romance. And I had Mm. heard that she did a really great job with historical romance. And I knew that like all of her male-male romances were really highly regarded. And uh, I'm a queer person and I like historical romance. I was like, oh, I should, I should get into that. I should. I might. Something's telling me I might like this. Yeah. Now that I can swear, because I already did three seconds into the podcast, I'd say that sounds like something I should fuck with. Right. Yeah. And and I was I was right. The people who recommended these books, they were spot on. This is great stuff. (laughs) And I'm picky about historical romance. And so we can get into what bugs me about the genre sometimes and how this book doesn't fall into those traps. Cool. Cool, cool. 
Uh, you want to talk? Let's talk about Charles a bit. KJ yeah, Charles. tell me about KJ. I don't know much uh, about KJ. She's a British writer who, according to her Goodreads profile, which she, where she does not check anymore because of too many spam messages. <laughs> she is a writer of romance, mostly M slash M, historical or fantasy or both. And uh, as of this year, she's written around twenty books. And yeah, like you said, Margaret, she is known for um, historical novels, like really painstakingly researched historical novels but also romance and representation and um, if you go to her website kjcharleswriter.com like the first three posts you'll see right now are all like really interesting blog posts about the issue of consent and romance and how you rules yeah and how you how you write it without being like can i touch your leg and then she says yes and then you're like I touched you on the leg. Now this this is more like a D and D thing, I guess. But it's so you, you don't you don't have to uh, make consent boring. Yeah. You can still make it. You you can still you make, can still it, make horny. it horny. So that's what she talks about. Yeah. Yeah. The the I really like that she drew a comparison to something I was not aware of as someone who has not read a lot of romance fiction. The what she called the crinkle of foil, which was. A thing that developed as the stand-in for condom usage as romance writers needed to start, like, signaling safe sex in their she stories. calling her readers, like, condom crinklers, and yeah. I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. But and she, she recognized that it was a thing that readers, like, wanted to know the author was thinking about but didn't want to spend time with. And she, as you said, Andrew, she makes a really good argument for not doing that with consent but actually finding ways to make consent a character revealing action uh, over the course of your scene um which is interesting she she spent 20 years as an editor uh over the course of her career and spent some time at Mills and Boone which is a very you know highly it's regarded basically the british equivalent of harlequin yes so it's not it necessarily is... highly regarded but prolific and influential. That's yeah. That's I, I used but highly yeah. regarded when I, I should <laughs> have said those words. If, if you're if you're looking for you know the Sheik's secret baby, the Sheik millionaire's secret baby, like Mills and Boone or Harley Quinn is where you go for that. Yes. So I, it's it's widely regarded. Yeah, widely <laughs> yeah. read. Great. People widely regard read. it. Often. inconsistently regarded mm-hmm. <laughs> uh and she has mentioned in other interviews that her experience as an editor has given her a real strong sense of structure and a strong sense of like how and why different relationships work over the course of a romance novel and like when characters having like a falling out feels contrived and when it actually moves the plot all that kind of stuff that has kind of apparently played into her work as an author, as you might think it would. Um, anything else on her background, Andrew, you want to hit? No, I have a few quotes that I can read about her like process, but I think we can bring them up like organically as we talk through what the book is doing. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Anything about the background of the Victorian novel or era, Margaret, that you want to mention coming in as like your own hangups, your own preferences? I like that you specified that you're asking that of Margaret as though I am also primed to give a really good answer (laughs) on this one. To be perfectly honest, you are the one of the two of us who has read more of these books. Like you Mm -hmm. took on all the Brontes and have read most of the Austin that we've read and things like that. But I know one of the reasons we went to Margaret was her experience in this era slash genre. Sure. Sure. One person on this podcast is running a digital pilgrimage dedicated to Pride and Prejudice in August. And then there are you two dummies. Yes, we can. You don't know. I could be huh. doing any any kind of thing. <laughs> you know, I could I, be doing that, too. You could set up a rival one, Andrew. And I think you would honestly probably get a lot of attendees. <laughs> in my brain, I was like, we should leave room at the end of the show for Margaret to plug stuff. And I had forgotten. You underestimated me. <laughs> forgotten that you would just do it anyway whenever you want it. I would. And I will. In podcasting as in life, plugs all over. Oh, my God. (laughs) Margaret, tell me about the Victorian novel and your specific opinions about it. Boy, howdy. (laughs) Um, Well, wait, I had one question about KJ Charles before we get into that. Sure. Is she she at all queer or is she straight? I believe she is straight. 
Yeah, she lives in uh, London with her uh, husband, two kids, an out-of-control garden, and an increasingly murderous cat, she says. I forgot that you... <laughs> I didn't realize you were going to read that part of her bio for a second. I thought you were just going to... Yeah, she lives in London, so... <laughs> um, which doesn't, like, preclude the possibility of her being bi. Exactly. Exactly uh, what I was about to point to out. a dude, yeah. Um, okay. she, she, there is an interview with uh, Smart, Smart Bitches Trashy Books that she did um, where she talks about trying to and she's talked about this in a number of interviews of like queering the canon and queering like historical fiction and trying to decenter cishet characters and she specifically acknowledges that she is not writing own voices fiction um in that interview she specifically says that she's like i would never write a coming out story because that she doesn't feel like that would be appropriate but what she can do is like write characters who are just living their lives, um, which is an interest. It, it's an interesting, and she does use sensitivity readers for certain characters sure, and things like that. Sure. So she is attempting to do the work in that regard. Um, totally, but it so. did seem like a pertinent thing to address yes. as we went into it. Yeah, um, and I was also curious. I didn't know, um, and it's certainly not you know glaringly apparent from the text or anything like that that she's sure writing from an outsider perspective. So, okay, Victorian novels. Well, you've got Victorian novels are one thing, historical fiction is another. Yes. Um and this is definitely historical fiction and so like it's rare for example that you have a Victorian novel that's told from the point of view of like two middle-class characters. Right, who are basically middle class the entire time living their middle class lives. There is like a lord involved because one of them is the um, bastard son of a duke, I think. Um, But you spend almost no time with the aristocracy and you're spending a lot of time in middle and lower class areas. And that's not super common um, in genuine 19th century novels. Yeah, generally Uh, it's like a man and a woman see each other across a room at a ball or like a a party, and then that's the next 800 pages. (laughs) I don't appreciate that reductive. Actually, okay, you've you've triggered me, and this is happening now. Uh So um, the book in the world that's made me angriest while Mm -hmm. reading it uh, was The Marriage Plot by Jeffrey Eugenides. And that was put forward as like, this is a book about a young woman who loves reading 19th century novels. And it's supposed to sort of like examine the marriage plot in a modern context and, and, you know, unpack how interacting with these novels where so much of the central concern is matrimony, um, like how that impacts a modern woman, right? And as a modern woman who spent a lot of time with marriage plot novels from the 19th century i was eager to read this mm-hmm. and um turns out that it's garbage because what jeffrey eugenides does not understand about the marriage plot in 19th century fiction is it's yeah the question is sort of like who does a woman end up with but that's because that's you know if a woman had anything she could decide about her life like it was that like that yeah, was your right, one right, thing right, right. <laughs> yes. right yes I, I was being flipped but we've talked a lot no, about no, no. this mostly I, in the later I Victorian mean, episodes you could done. you <laughs> could go listen to episode 65 of Overdue where Andrew tells me about the marriage plot by Jeffrey Eugenides. I don't know what we talked Did about. I read that? Yeah. I have no memory. <laughs> but of that. I hate that book <laughs> it so much. It is an episode that has occurred. Anyway, I, think I must have read it because I liked Middlesex yes, and I, I, think I, I don't remember I like Middlesex it. Middlesex too. I love Middlesex. Yeah, I was so like now that I'm thinking about it, I do remember not liking it as much as Middlesex. That's so bad. Yeah. Our, our so, episode description does uh discuss sexism in the book. So cool. Well, At it's least rampant, we did that. So <laughs> <laughs> I can see why. So anyways, yes, marriage is the central concern, but it is that's just because like that's the decision you could make and so much about your character had to be expressed through that one choice and so mm-hmm. like some books like middlemarch are all about like the tragic limitation of the fact that that's the only choice women can make about themselves and it's this incredibly bright woman and the framing is like she should have been like a like a saint in a time when we understood crusades and calls to god more clearly but because she's just a upper middle class woman in pastoral England, the only way she can manifest any of the greatness that she has inside of her is through the men she decides to marry. 
and she doesn't make great choices in that regard. <laughs> you know, because whomst among us does. Yeah, sure. Um, and so when you move that to the present, right, where women can make all kinds of choices about themselves, but you suddenly present a character who feels like her only choice is who she ends up with. What you've done is create a wildly misogynistic character right? mm, mm, what you haven't done is like oh my god i'm gonna i'm gonna subvert the marriage plot of victorian fiction it's like no you shithead you're just gonna <laughs> fundamentally misunderstand what the concerns in those novels were and what the female characters were doing within the limitations of the society as depicted so so how does that relate to this book <laughs> great i guess question so i think what's really wonderful about what kj charles is setting out to do with this book and it sounds like with her sort of whole project is she's setting out to fill in some of the blanks right so we know what it looked like when you were trying to succeed within the boundaries of respectable society and what the incredible limitations were like and what the class structure looked like at the very very tip top of British society. But that's a fraction of what occurs in a country. That's just like a, it's basically like coastal elitism, right? Sure. You just assume okay. that everything that happens in Boston, New York, uh -oh. and Los Angeles, Boston, don't you love how I just well, so elevated what you're Boston saying, to like the third most important city? Is that KJ Charles is going to the Ohio diners of 19th century England? No, not necessarily. I guess it's more like that thing in the New York Times where like a styles piece is like two other rich people at the New York Times both go to the same coffee shop. Okay. And sure. so they've decided to styles piece, right? Mm -hmm. And so what's exported to the rest of the country about what New York is like is really just like 15 rich people talking to one another and like which dry cleaner they go to. Mm. Um, but of course, in New York... There is a lot more texture to the world than that narrow slice would depict. And so KJ Charles is digging into that slice, that huge unclaimed territory, um, and just basically imagining what the lives we did not know were important enough to make records about would have looked like. Cool. Or yeah. So what she says about, sorry to interrupt. What no, no. I just, what she says about her. Me. What she says about her process in uh, one of the interviews that I read is, uh, I tend to home in on particular historical details, and my research books tend to be the super tend to the super specific. A book on the Cato Street conspiracy, or an entire tome on London fog, or Victorian taxidermy. I find Henry Mayhew invaluable for Victorian London moods. In general, books written at the time yours is set it, are very handy for mood and tiny detail. So, yeah, it's that to avoid anachronism keep it keep your scope narrow is her basic uh modus operandi yeah but also think but is... also sounds like it, she uses that to find untold character stories yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 okay both of those things check out so, so what is the premise here what is what is this who is the... who is unseen and who is attracted is what i want to know so the premise here is um, we have a, a young man named Clem who runs a boarding house and he has a crush on one of the men who lives in the boarding house, one of his tenants, uh, Rowley or Rowley, Rowley. Um, and Rowley is a taxidermist and his taxidermy shop is just down the street and they're both in this position where, like, they're really, really good friends and they sort of hang out every night. They, like, drink tea together when Rolly comes in from his shop and so on and so forth. But, like, there are huge consequences if you are gay and you make an advance on someone who isn't. And so, although you figure out pretty quickly that they're both attracted to one another um, and that they both think maybe the other one is attracted to them, you can tell that, like making that next step is going to be really challenging for both of them. Um, so that's your basic thing. And what I really like is that for much of the book, for like the first, I'd say fifth, you know, most of what you know about Clem is his day-to-day -day work experience. And it's not until, like I say, maybe a fifth of the way into the book that you learn he's Indian or mm. he's at least half Indian. Mm. Um, and 
what I like about that is that that's actually much more, you know, like most of the fiction that we read now from that period of time depicts an almost exclusively white England. Right. right? But of course, that wasn't even remotely the case. <laughs> um, there were people of uh, all races in London, and there had been for sizable amounts of time Um, on account of colonialism yes on account of colonialism uh what a wild project england undertook there's a well there's a quote from charles in in the interview i said earlier where she says um and she she brings us up in a topic of class erasure which you were talking about earlier um but she i think she was specifically responding to a question about like silent servants and faceless servants yeah um but she says I think it's disheartening when there's class erasure. I feel it's disheartening when there's erasure of the really significant numbers of people of color who've always lived in this country, meaning England, particularly in Georgian romance when there was probably 30,000 black people living in London. But you can read a Georgian romance and not see any evidence of that. The erasure of queer people, the erasure of Indians and any Victorian. And it's it's an ongoing thing, she says, because there's been a kind of creation of this version of Britain, which is incredibly white, aristocratic and cishet. And she goes on to say that that's not a thing that she wants. Um, and it's not a fantasy that she thinks is like pleasing because you can go back and, you know, it is historical fiction, which means that there is an amount, there is an element of world building to it. So you can either choose to reinforce a status quo or dig a little bit deeper. Right. Sure. So Georgian romance speaks to, uh, the sort of strain of historical romance that starts with Georgette Heyer in like the 1920s and 1930s. And that's really where sort of like modern historical romances start. Um, And she's basically writing sort of like screwball comedies, but with just like a light gloss of 19th century slang and fashion. So they're all set in Victorian London and she's making great use of sort of the aesthetic signifiers of that time, but the characters are conducting themselves mostly like modern men and women in the 1930s would be, or at least your moral orientation to them is like, if a woman is like brash and, you know, like she's like mixing it up with people and she's meddling, you're like, wow, she's great. What a, what a card. And, and like, if the (laughs) stiff man is like, Oh no, I disapprove. This is against social convention. You're like, well, he's going to get over that. (laughs) Um, And they're pretty racist and super anti-Semitic. Um, And those are their own problems, but it's also just like it sets forth this 19th century that has about as much to do with the actual 19th century London as like Euro as 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 it's a small world after all has to do with Europe. Sure. Okay. Like you're getting some top notes and you know, you can go and experience those special cuisines, but you're not (laughs) really engaging with the full texture and reality of that time. And so there's a lot of historical fiction generally, but especially historical romance that's operating in that space where it's sure. like, we like the costumes. We like some of the constraint provided by social convention, but we're not really going to examine anything that's happening in the space any more closely than that. And we're just kind of going to write how we feel like writing. And if the love stories are good enough, they're kind of fun, but they always bug me. Because there's so much interesting stuff you can do if you actually engage with the historical period. And I think KJ Charles does an amazing job of demonstrating that. So here we go. Back to the plot of the book. Yeah. Or whatever. So, anyways, we've got Clem, we've got Roly. We know they want a bone, but we know that there are major social conventions in the way of them admitting that they want a bone. And so there's just like a lot of sexual tension at the beginning. Um, and they each have a lot of really sort of like interesting character traits that KJ Charles does not lead with, but instead sort of lets develop organically as she's telling the story, which I think is really cool and artful. So there they are flirting. Um, and there's this really bad tenant who also lives in the boarding house and he's just like drunk all of the time and he's incredibly rude to everyone and and Roly is like, why don't you kick him out? Like, wh- why is he allowed to break every rule of this boarding house? And the rest of us just have to live with it without him being kicked out. And that's when you find out that Clem runs this boarding house on behalf of his brother who owns the property. 
and his brother's one like like contingent demand upon that gift is like you have to house this man and you can't ever stop housing this man that sucks <laughs> and he's not going to pay rent this- so you're like hmm, that doesn't sound that sounds that sounds fishy and he's um i should say he's a defrocked priest so you're like hmm what is this what is this brother of yours clem have to do with this defrocked priest and so slowly you find out that um clem's brother is the current earl or duke of something and that clem's dad was the former earl or duke of something and that clem is the result of a indian um nanny aya being raped and then shipped back to india and then he was raised cool. as a bastard within that family. Super cool. And Super then they and then they said, cool. and you have to run this boarding house. He was raised by a bastard within that family, and his brother's mother was dying at the time that the assault on Clem's mother happened. Okay. So there's this understanding that his brother hates him, but that's okay because their dad was like fooling around but not that with um clem's mom well his other brother's mom was dying and um and so clem is just like always second best always trying to sort of prove his place within the family he was born to and just like really really wants to do right by his brother even though his brother is a shocker absolute piece of shit cool Glad I can swear because I just don't know how I would express these things without the foul language. Um, kids develop richer expression than I have. <laughs> what Please. is what is Rolly's deal? Rolly, Rowley, Rolly. Rolly, Rowley, right. Rolly. Yeah. Um, he, as previously stated, is a taxidermist, and he is grew up in like the slums in London, and his dad was a murderer. And like he saw his dad hang because that was a murderer oh. and and an abusive drunkard, which also makes him particularly uh, hate the bad tenant who gets drunk all of the time. OK, Um. so and he ended up becoming a taxidermist because the only person in his neighborhood who was nice to him was the local taxidermist. And like once he got to a point where he like couldn't live with his dad anymore, he moved in with the taxidermist and like learned his art. And so. So one of the really, really cool things that KJ Charles does is she clearly did an enormous amount of research into like what 19th century taxidermy was like, like what chemicals that you would use, like what the artistic styles that would have been present would have been like. So there's this MacGuffin, which is um like a, a badger that's um that's like dressed to look like Hermes, the messenger god, and he's holding like a scroll in his hand. And that's just like something that um, that Rowley inherited with the shop when he took it on. But it's an example of a type of taxidermy that he finds like abhorrent because what he really wants to do is he wants to sort of like take these dead bodies and he gets like discarded songbirds from pet shops that haven't sold and died in the process. And like all that would happen is they would go on the dust heap. So he's very sustainably sourced. Is I guess what I would tell you <laughs> about his um his uh, taxidermy pelts, and he gets them and he sort of tries to capture, um, in the taxidermy sculptures that he makes, like the beauty of what it was like when they were alive, and sort of is like trying really hard to capture something organic and lively and lovely. And like the one of the earliest bonding points is when he brings Clem to his shop and sort of shows him around, and Clem like gets the artistic aesthetic that he's reaching for and like has an idea for how to do one that celebrates sort of like London city birds that they start working on together. And they both look at this badger, this Hermes badger. And they're like, what an abomination, right? Because instead of celebrating sort of like the aliveness of the badger, it's like making a joke out of the badger and like dressing it in this weird costume. And it's just like, who would like, or want that? So What's Andrew, pertinent? What, what? This sounds like something you would do. Is like, is if you were a taxidermist, you would make all the animals do goofy stuff. 
I was just who looked like the messenger guy. I super would. (laughs) I was thinking about yeah. When you mentioned taxidermy, I was thinking about sometimes back when Craig and I could hang out in the same place, Mm -hmm. um, our evenings hanging out and playing video games and drinking brewskis would end with some fun YouTube video watching. Yeah, I feel like the Victorian version of that is like you have you go over to your taxidermy friend's house. And you're like, all right, now put him now put him in this pose. Let's let's see him do this one. And then, what if yes. they were what if they were what if they were the animals were kissing? And then you invite your friend the portraitist to come by and sketch it so you can remember it later. Yeah, right. That's funny yeah, that's, to me. That sounds that sounds very true. What if this um, animal like, were smoking a joint? <laughs> How do you think dogs playing poker? I think it would have been an existed. opium pipe, but oh sure, you're right, Andrew. I, this is how dogs playing poker dogs would playing happen. Poker was just a series of escalating pranks <laughs> that resulted in so, a painting. <laughs> so, Margaret, you do love dogs. You're a dog do. lover, right? Huge dog lover. 100%. I was looking at some of the Goodreads review for this book, and a number of people who liked the book for the most part did specifically mention the taxidermy as a dislike. Um, I have a review from Whiskey in the Jar uh, who said another... That's a good place for whiskey. Another personal... It's a reference to a song also. Another personal dislike was Rolly's taxidermy. The author does a great job describing, explaining, and realistically weaving it into the story. But for someone who loves human slasher movies, I just can't read about people wanting to stuff their pets. And Rolly explaining the process. Greatly appreciate the research in depth, but bowels and skinning animals is not for me. (laughs) But like I said, it didn't seem to bother the majority of people. So, like, is this just a thing you appreciated on the details and the research of it, and it didn't really bother you as someone who likes animals? That is correct. And also, like, as someone who likes animals, you get the sense that, like, Rolly likes animals, too. He's not, like, a creepy taxidermist. He's not, (laughs) like... Um, he's not like so normally he's n- probably he's not doing funny poses then. <laughs> right. He is not doing funny poses. And in fact, he like hates doing people's pets, for example, because he's like, well, because they don't like I'm never going to create anything that captures ah. the spirit of the alive sure. animal. Yeah. Right. And he's like one of the few exceptions I've made is like someone like had a very, very old spaniel and they like wanted it to look like it was like sleeping so they could sort of just like have it in its bed in the corner asleep. And he was like, that was one where it was like, I felt like my art was like equal to the task that was being put before me. But like, otherwise it's just really disappointing for the pet owners and a lot of work for me. So no. Yeah, I can't with taxidermy animals. I, I don't think I can with cloning animals either, which is basically just a living taxidermy no. that you made <laughs> of an animal that died. That sounds nightmarish. Yeah. <laughs> so these two men, the boarding room guy, the boarding house guy, and the yeah. taxidermist. You said they go the- to see they go to see acrobats, and when they go to see acrobats, like one of them puts like a hand on the other one's leg, and then it is on like Donkey Kong, right? <laughs> and what so, a like, good current reference. Thank you. <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that. <laughs> so then they finally sort of confirm that, like, yeah, they're both gay and they both like boys and they both like each other. How far into and the so, book is this? Like, how far is the is I the? How are they going to pull this one off? About, happen, yeah. I'd say again, like about about like one fifth of the way through. Okay, cool, cool, cool. You finally get to the beginning of the consummation, and that is also when the sort of mystery plot kicks into high gear because, okay. like, that bad tenant, he shows up like tortured and dead on the doorstep of tortured uh, and dead, huh? Tortured and dead <laughs> on the on the doorstep of uh, like all his fingers have been broken and like I think like an ear has been cut off. It's just like not a good scene. Yikes. So I mean, just like if you're worried about the taxidermy, like come on. Yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> Worry about the human torture more, white ladies who like dogs. <laughs> the taxidermies come alive in Toy Story <laughs> universe because yeah. they're just stuffed animals. They definitely right? do. They definitely do, and as spooky as hell. Do, do mm. toy cars come alive <laughs> in the Cars universe? 
Oh, like, great do, is my RC car alive? No, it's alive no, in the toys. Not. RC is alive in the toys I universe. I think there's got to be some kind of loophole so they can sell Lightning McQueen like merchandise. Look, you wouldn't want to make a Lightning to McQueen. other cars. No, no, no. Like, <laughs> like, Craig, we have action figures and we have baby dolls as humans, right? And they're not alive. So I think the cars have toy cars that aren't alive. Yeah, if if they made toy car car Toy Story. <laughs> Then the toy cars would be alive, but exactly, in just exactly. regular vanilla cars. Andy's the mom toys are is still a car. Toys. That's what I have to say. Boy, this is Andy's dad used to be a car. <laughs> That's why you never see him. Wow, Andy's dad he is, is the car. He's the car they drive around in. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. Margaret, tell me about this book, please. Sure. So okay. Like defrocked drunk priest dead on the doorstep. Yeah. Right. And Predictably, because the police in 19th century as now are not actually agents of justice, but um, agents of white supremacy and uh, class oppression. Okay. Um, when they're wow. called, <laughs> when they're called to this boarding house uh, run by a half Indian uh, gentleman, and like, like they're interacting with like this, um, this like poor lower class taxidermist. And these guys are like, we didn't have anything to do with the crime. The police are like, mm, IDK, probably you guys. You guys probably killed him. I, like, love what did his- you- I love reading historical novels about stuff that doesn't happen anymore. Right. It was like, what did you do to cross this guy? Like, who did you cross to end up with this guy dead? Like, be honest with us. And they're like, we didn't do anything. We have no idea what's going on. So this is one thing I'll say about romance novels in general is like a lot of romance novels are like romance and suspense or romance and mystery. And like, I like it as sort of an, a plot engine, but it's rarely satisfying in and of itself as a mystery because you're like, well, I know who had this man killed. It's, um, it's Clem's rich brother who's been forcing him to house him for years. Right. Because like, Forcing him to house this defrocked priest. Hmm. I yeah, wonder I why that, he that might was, be doing that. I think that was our experience with like Fifty Shades and some of the other stuff that we've read too. Is like clearly this work exists for one thing, but it's trying to do two things. Yes, and, and I would. Yeah, this does this does a better job than Fifty Shades. I think that would be yeah, that would be difficult not to. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> But it doesn't do as good a job as, say, uh, there's an incredible series of mystery novels that are by a romance writer, Sherry Thomas, and they're um, the Lady Sherlock books. And it's basically like Sherlock Holmes, but Sherlock Holmes was born a woman. And like, what would that look like realistically in 19th century England? And the answer is fascinating. And I highly recommend you check them out. And those are one of the rare ones where like the mystery plot is as good as the love story. And you're like, wow, each of these things is equally compelling. And here you're like, okay, well, I guess we're going to follow some red herrings and stuff while we pretend that it's not obviously the brother (laughs) (laughs) housing this alcoholic priest who's clearly concealing a fake marriage he had in his youth that would render his current marriage illegitimate and also his son, like, not the Earl, which BT dubs is exactly what that drunk priest was there doing. Um, So the drunk priest... Uh, the 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 lady who the duke secretly married has just like died in the workhouse, and so the drunk priest is like realizes that his his blackmail tether is is running out, and so he tries to pull on it one more time and asks for too much, and so then the brother's like, mm, "I'm gonna kill you," but suspecting this will happen, the t- bad tenant snuck into Raleigh's taxidermy shop and like hid the marriage, hid the page that he tore out of the marriage register in guess where? The the, the badger scroll held by the Hermes badger. Ah <laughs> so that's our MacGuffin is is we're looking for this document and it's clear like someone broke into his room before he died to try and find it and then like someone wrecks Rolly's shop trying to find it and then like someone tries to burn down Rolly's shop, which is very easy because the tools of the taxidermist trade are highly flammable. Huh, go figure. Go figure. That's convenient. I mean, what's nice is it's established well before it has plot significance. Okay, um, sure. So then when it's like brought up that there's like a fire in the shop, you're like, oh no, everything is so flammable. Rolly can't even have a fire in there. That's why he comes home so cold and needs to have tea with Clem. 
So it's again, it's very, it's well, it's well woven. The weft of the details is great. By the so, time, um, by the time that the mystery has reached this fever pitch of badgers holding documents and things catching on fire, like where is the romance at this point? So that is where the mystery plot serves its role well, right? And that's because as KJ Charles references, there's a there's a natural structure to these things. Where there's like initial attraction, acting on attraction, happy couple time, and then there's like fight where it's like, oh no, is a happy ending gonna happen here? And you're like, uh, yeah, but but you're <laughs> supposed to be in genuine suspense. Right. And then the happy ending happens. And so the role the we all play while reading a romance novel where we're like, <laughs> you know, I'll go along with you that maybe this won't work out for right. a few pages anyway. But you want it to be ideally like it, it, you're in it for the happy ending. Right. And you'll just sort of handle what happens between the two. But for me, I want the attraction to feel specific and organic and i also want the conflict to feel specific and organic and that's something that i think she does super well and so the conflict here is that clem really does not want to believe that his brother is behind this and really does not want to let his brother down because he's been raised again in this like really screwed up way um and really just sort of thinks that like he has to be extremely grateful to his brother and one of the other things that sort of emerges about Clem is obviously they don't have the word autism or they can't talk about an autism spectrum, but like Clem is definitely on the autism spectrum and it's really sort of addressed and introduced in a very, very fascinating way. And one of the ways that he and Rowley come together is because Rowley had like another, Rowley has really, really bad eyesight. So he was put in sort of like the dunces camp with an extremely smart person who was autistic in like their like public school in, you know, like East End London. Um, and so he's been around somebody who has sort of similar challenges to Clem. And so he has this capacity to be patient and understanding with them um, that very few other people have ever had for Clem. Hmm. Um, which is just like, what a what an interesting thing to take on. And it's so, again, beautifully done. So Clem, in this space, he's, like, not the best at reading people, right? Oh, sure. And so, and he's not very good at recognizing lying, right? So Rowley will be like, obviously, your brother is lying to you, dude. Like, the story that he told you is clearly fabricated. And the conflict comes from Clem being like, I'm tired of being treated like a child. Like, I'm tired of everyone talking down to me. And I make all this effort to be kind to people, to be considerate to people. And, like, I'm tired of that being treated like a character flaw and, like, I'm, like, an idiot and naive. And you're like, I don't love the conclusions you're coming to because of that frustration, but that frustration is very believable. Mm -hmm. And Rowley, on the other hand, is, like, traumatized by his abusive dad. And so he, when he encounters violence, he just, like, is really, really scared and he freezes up, right? And that both makes when they have fights really challenging because if Clem gets angry, Rowley really freezes up and, like, doesn't have the emotional skills to sort of resolve the fight. Um, And then also just means that he's just like terrified that this like violent hitman is stalking the two of them trying to get this document. And he's like, can we just give him the document? And Clem's like, no, I have to send it back to my brother. And Riley's like, why would you do that? Cause then he'll just kill us. (laughs) And so they're sort of in this space for a second and it is helpfully resolved by another group I want to mention, which is uh, Clem has like some social clubs that he's a part of that I think really tell you really interesting things about what KJ Charles has observed about Victorian society. So one is like wealthy Indian men who are sort of trying to make it in aristocratic London. But then there's also just like poor Indian people who sort of live in a different part who are not trying to assimilate. Uh, and, like, that's the place where Clem goes and, like, actually feels some connection to his Indian heritage. Uh, and then there's, uh, I think, the Jack or the Jack and Knave. The Jack and is, Knave, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Right. The Jack and Knave, which is basically, like, the gay social club that Clem belongs to. And so I feel like that is probably going to be the nexus from which other couples that KJ Charles writes about sort of spring it, yeah, because you need my, all these interesting characters. It's my understanding that each of the books in this trilogy 
features a different couple that all meet or engage with the Jack and Knave in some way, shape, or hmm. form. So a Dublin, Dublin murder squad style <laughs> thing. Sure. Look, look, look. Mystery novels are playing catch up on serial romance, right? <laughs> They've been doing this forever. It's like it's like every time you read one of these 19th century novels, it's like a family of five siblings. And you're like, okay, great. So there are going to be five books in this series about all of these siblings <laughs> getting married. And there's always like one who's like the overbearing, like cold, hard one. You're like, okay, great. And that's going to be the last book. And you're going to be like, oh, your comeuppance is coming for you, overbearing older brother. Now you're going to fall in love and won't it be egg on your face? And it's always very satisfying. So anyways. Well, so if this is the first in a, in a trilogy that is clearly going to feature other characters, does it? What is the resolution for these guys in this book? Like, how does that go? What I would say is that it's convenient. Okay. So, at <laughs> I mean, least as far as the yeah. as far as the ex, the mystery plot that's been put into work, and then like the realities of what policing looked like at that time, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, there's a there's a detective within the Jack and Knave, former cop, and he sort of takes on the case of sort of figuring out what happens. And he brings back pretty incontrovertible evidence that, like, the story that Clem's brother told him about, like, this village girl seducing him with his innocence, with her innocence, and then, like, revealing on the wedding night that she was, like, a big whore. <laughs> she was just going to be a big whore. And, and him then going and being like, ah, remove the page from the marriage register and hide all evidence this ever occurred, that that was all, like, fully a lie. Um, and that she actually was pretty virginal and, like, that's why the fake marriage had to happen. And then when she fled town, it's because she totally got knocked up. So there's another duke sort of, like, out there. Another, you know, part of the noble family. Duke's um, all over. Duke's all over. Um, and... Then Clem is like, okay, my brother is a piece of shit, and he's he's the person who's probably trying to get this, and we can't give him back this page, even though I feel really guilty about making his son into a bastard, because I lived that life, and it was so painful. And, like, I don't want to put that on this kid. So they is resolved, but then his brother shows up and, like, tries to murder Clem by poisoning him, but luckily Roly's in, like, Clem's bedroom unbeknownst to him, and so he observes it, and he's like, don't drink that teacup! And, you know... <laughs> Turns it into the fire where it burns blue, which indicates there was their, arsenic. That's a good callback to their time together drinking tea. That makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. Sure, Very sure. good callback. Um, and also, it does good stuff with sort of the the autism angle because one of the reasons that Clem really likes him is that Rowley sort of understands that he can only do one thing at a time. And he oh, doesn't okay. try and talk with him while he's putting together tea and he doesn't try to rush him. Whereas his brother has always been a huge asshole about the fact that like these processes that should be normal are a little bit more complicated and take more focus for him. And so like one of the things that happens is to sort of force him out of the room is his brother kind of terrorizing him around his sort of like autism processing struggles to such an extent that like finally like Clem has to leave the room to like get sugar or something and like that's when his brother pours the arsenic into the tea oh, okay. um and it's his brother sort of like knowing his weakness and like using it against him whereas Rowley sort of like understands his uh different orientation to the world and knows how to be patient and compassionate with it sure. so anyways he tries to poison the tea and then like Rowley, it turns out that like the agent that he'd hired um thinking that the paper had been sent back to the brother because that is what uh, Rowley tells him when, like, the agent corners him and in, like, a alley. Um, instead of going to the guy and be like, cool news, your brother sent you the, the marriage register page and everything's fine. He's like, your brother is blackmailing you and you need to give me $10,000 to give him or else he's going to take the page to, you know, the, the other, the next in line will show that your son's claim is illegitimate um so his brother shows up to kill him to prevent the blackmail and then like Rowley stops him and then he's like hey like you're an asshole your brother is really loyal to you if you'd given him like a reason to care about you like he would have stood by you forever and like instead you were trying to kill him because your bad guy lied to you to try and scam money out of you and like you should be so ashamed and like also all of this is definitely going to come out and so then the brother you sort of think he commits suicide um but you're like well part of his tendon was cut on the hand that supposedly like shot 
himself in the head. So probably what really happened is like the bad guy just like killed him uh, out of anger. So then the brother dies. um, And then it comes out that, uh, you know, his marriage was not legitimate and his son is not the legitimate heir. But the next thing is like, well, maybe we'll find the real legitimate heir. And you're like, okay, so that's probably what's going to happen in the next book. Is sure, gonna, sure. You know, <laughs> find this poor kid <laughs> born of this noble woman, like this, this honorable poor lady who died in the workhouse and like make him into a Duke. So that's probably what's going to happen next. Great. Um, okay. And- I guess like, so you mentioned like not being, I don't, I don't know if it, it so you weren't surprised or like particularly engaged by the mystery in this book. I don't know if that equates to like not liking it or just like you figured it out. I don't, I don't know where the enjoyment in that mystery is coming from you. And it also maybe sounds like some of the foreshadowing for subsequent books was a little predictable for you. I'm wondering like how much of that is your knowledge of the genre? How much of it is how this book is written? Like what, how do you, a hundred percent. The, the way genre. you describe it makes it sound like you're sort of like over it a little bit, but I don't think that was your experience no. in reading the book. Right? No. Um, so one of the really interesting things sort of like about romance novel readers in general is like predictability is is a feature, not a bug. Sure. Right? You're not going to these like like you're not going to this story for an unhappy ending, right? Like you're going to this story for a happy ending. And you know that there are going to be these sort of beats and you kind of are on the lookout for like, who are the secondary characters being introduced here who are going to become primary characters? Because you sort of know that that's the way things go in these books. And it's not, so you're not like, oh, of course, they're introducing these secondary characters who are going to become primary characters. You're like, oh my God, I love these secondary characters. (laughs) Can't wait to see what the story about this like, drunk actor is gonna be like it's gonna be great (laughs) like wonder who the detective is gonna fall in love with it's gonna be delightful um and you're just like amped you're excited that these other characters are being brought forward and you don't have to feel like your attachment to them is ephemeral you feel like your attachment to them is foundational and it's something you're gonna get to build on with the writer and And, then the and the process of getting to know the the characters who are the main characters in this book suggest to you that the process of getting to know the other characters is going to be rewarding and worth the time investment. A hundred percent. Sure. And the mystery, like the joy of the novel is not really in who done it. So it's not a problem that like I knew exactly who done it and exactly why done it <laughs> like immediately. <laughs> right. Because it's not, the suspense does not lie in, like, are they going to solve this? It lies in, are they going to make it through this complicated, hard thing with their complicated, challenging triggers and their misunderstandings and, like, still come through it as a couple? And, like, also be, like, safe and alive in a society that really wants them to be neither. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Is, it, so, is it a steamy book? Oh, is there steam? There is a lot of steam. You touch, um, you touch the valve, you burn your hand, it's steamy? You you sure do. You how sure many, sure do. How many penises? Whoa. <laughs> uh, I think <laughs> just the two. Okay. You really only but interact you, with the two. But do you like <laughs> see? But do you see them, or is it like an artful fade to black sort of thing? Oh I guess no, is what I'm there's asking. not an artful fade to black. You okay, get like cool. a lot of very explicit detail. Can I read part of? It's not a very explicit scene. I'd be disappointed um, if you didn't. Great. Good, good, good. Well, because I honestly think this is one of the, this is one of the hardest things to do well. And she attempts something even more challenging and does it really, really well. So speaking about sort of like how she models consent, they're like having these conversations about sort of like what steps want to happen. And, um, and Clem has a hard time because like, with the autism, the touching, the processing, the many things going on at once, he like feels very self-conscious and like he's not going to be good at anything. And Raleigh's always like, whatever you want to do is going to be cool with me. We're cool. Like, you just go ahead and do whatever and we're cool. And so finally, Clem is like, um, like, well, you don't have to just indulge me. And so this is the conversation they have. He says, no, but I'm, I know I'm not quite as easy with these things as other men but that doesn't mean we should only do things that I want. 
that's not right. And then Roly says, I see. No. Well, I mean it, Roly. I don't want you to. I can't think of the word. I love that you're thinking about me and want what I want. But if that means I can't think about you, too, that's not how it should be at all. He reached for Roly's hand. I don't mean to be ungrateful. No, don't say that, Roly cut in. Gratitude doesn't come into it. Uh, I'm glad you said that and thank you. But the thing is, he bit his lift, color flushing his usually pale face. I like to be undemanding in bed. To, well, have the other person make the decisions. There's something about someone doing what he wants with me. Trails off suggestively. Mm -hmm. Clem felt his mouth go around with surprise. Oh, which isn't to say I don't want a voice in the matter or to be, you know, hurt, Rolly added hastily. That's not what I mean at all. I'm sorry. It's hard to explain. But knowing you were doing just what you liked to me, with me, and the look on your face. Clem could understand that because the look on Rolly's face was enough to send his send a jolt through his softening cock. Oh, he said again. <laughs> well, um, if you're sure. I don't mean that I want you to do all the work, Rolly's fingertips traced a precise, unreadable message on Clem's back. It's only if you'd like to say how you want it and what you'd like to do and have me do exactly what you want, just as you like it, as slowly as you want, trails off. And that's... So basically, Rolly's like, Clem, I'm a bottom. Can you top me? And Clem turns to be equal to it. And I just feel like that's very, again, like pretty artfully done. This seems very much like I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. So tell me what you want, what you really, really want. Like that's yeah. the situation that I just Very heard. much, very much. And so, you know, subsequent to that, we have some scenes where, you know, Clem does exactly what he wants and like makes Rowley wait a lot, which Rowley really gets off on. And, you know, they really play in this space very effectively. <laughs> Take up the whole playground. That's good. They sure do. They sure do. Um, and it's very effective writing. Mm. Um, it was, it was ch a challenge for me to read in, uh, this, this period of COVID-19 where I'm really suffering. Mm. Okay. COVID-19, for people who are not familiar with the appointment television extended universe, COVID-19 <laughs> is a malady of Margaret's invention. She discovered it. She's suffering from it. Uh, where yeah. you just it's you just miss the the intimate touch of another human being. Sure, right. like we all have we all have a lot of anxiety about our present moment, and it's all getting channeled into different things. And as a single woman, for me, it's getting channeled into oh god, am I never going to have sex again? Mm. You know, and predictably, that just means you fixate on that whole you know thing. Yeah. Just on As every podcast that you, you record for three months. <laughs> Look, <laughs> you brought me on to talk about a romance novel. Yeah, no, that's, you did not yeah, bring yeah, up yeah, COVID-19 yeah, yeah. until, you We played you know, ourselves. We understand. After the one hour mark. So. Andrew, is there any, any quotes from Charles or, or things that you had found that you want to make sure that we hit on if Margaret hasn't already covered it or, or as we kind of wrap up here? No, no, no. I think I think we got to it. Most of what I was focused on was just the the um, the amount and kind of research she was doing to create her like historical backdrops, and then um, about you know her her work queerifying the canon, which is something you spoke to already with with one of your questions. So I I, th I think we got to it, and yeah, we've we've talked about beyond just like reading a romance novel for the normal reasons you would read a romance novel the value that she is bringing to this genre with her stories that she's choosing to tell in her writing in particular. So, yeah. And it sounds like Margaret, you would it, mostly, I made a list of things in the Goodreads reviews that were like, Andrew and I have, have gotten a habit of looking at like two and three star reviews as like love people, a three star review people who like <laughs> liked it, but had a bunch of misgivings or whatever. And, you know, one of the things was the taxidermy thing. One of it was that people actually some folks did not enjoy that it felt like the first in a trilogy. Whereas for you, it sounds like that was just a genre pleasure. Totally. Um, and then 
something that you mentioned very early is that like when the book starts, and this will maybe be my last question, when the book starts, they already know each other, right? They are friends of a sort. And as you mm-hmm. said, it takes about a fifth of the book before they consummate that and, and kind of learn about each other more extensively. But the book thus kind of, it lacks a meet cute, right? It, it lacks a like, or do you find she found a way to include that even though they already knew each other? I think it does lack a meet cute in like a like a genre formalist sort of way. Yeah. But I think friends to lovers is also a very popular trope. And I sure. think that this does a great job of investigating that style of romance novel story. And yeah, that's I was just going to say, yeah, that could can fill a similar, similar role. Like you didn't see how they met, but you did see how they became entwined. Totally. <laughs> and emotionally. Yes. And emotionally first. Yeah. And then physically second. <laughs> and then physically um, again. And again. And again. Many times. Many times. <laughs> Okay, cool. So many times. I think that's it then, Andrew. Any other questions you have about Victorian taxidermy for Margaret? No, no, just that I probably would be disappointed by how seriously people seem to take it. <laughs> lighten up, lighten up a little bit. You know? <laughs> let your, just let a badger dress as Hermes. Like, why do you got to be such a buzzkill? It's true. That's true. Every once in a while, you have to meet a customer who's a big jerk to you, and you do a really goofy job on their taxidermy. <laughs> I love it. And and I would I just would... like give give their pet dog googly eyes. Yeah, it's like spitting in a burger or something. It's like you gotta you gotta do something. Well, and you could, there's probably an opportunity there to be like, well, like I was working with your pet, and like. The spirit of Philip just like called to me and said, he's going to look like this. You could emotionally manipulate people in all kinds of ways. You sure could. People Mm. are very emotional about their dead pets. I only want this to happen to people that deserve it. I don't want it to good people. Yeah, that that goes without saying. Yeah, Yeah, obviously. (laughs) We want the good people with their emotions about their dead pets to be honored. Yes. Um, send us emails about your taxidermied pets at overduepod at gmail.com. I promise I'll read them all and it won't be weird. Um, you can hit us up on social media at overduepod on Twitter and Facebook. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. We have a link to Apple Podcasts, to Google Play, our RSS feed. We're on Spotify and Stitcher as well. Anywhere you get fine podcasts. Uh, we also have uh, links to the books that we have read and are going to read our June schedule. Well, our July schedule. Sorry. Jeez. What is time? We'll be up soon. We've already figured it out and uh, it'll be good. They're all good. Uh, the main thing that we know is on there is Hunger Games. The last Hunger Games book. The last Hunger Games. July, yes, we so. are hungry. And I can't. <laughs> unlike with Fifty Shades where. I will read gray over my own dead body. I would be willing to go like both twilight and hunger games. I'd be willing to go back to like the retcon gender swap prequel, whatever the hell these authors decide to do to capitalize on this, on their works. Like I'm, I'm open to going back to that. I think. Hmm. Well, now you've said it out loud on air. We have to do it. That's how it works. Margaret, tell them. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. Tell them, (laughs) tell them their business, tell them your business or whatever. What do you do? So, I host Appointment Television, the the TV podcast with Andrew and our friend Catherine. That is, again, sure. about the television you want to make time for. Uh, currently, we're doing a TV book club on Tuca and Birdie, which is delightful. Uh, so, that's one space you can find me. Another space you can find me is at my culture newsletter, Two Bossy Dames, twobossydames.substack.com, um, where me and our friend Sophie, who's been on the show a number of times, in fact, we've been on the show together. Um, share We're taking aware. our show from us yes. and we have. done it. Yeah. <laughs> if you want, if you liked this, you should definitely go back and listen to our episode about the flowers in the attic because oh my it's God. Yeah, that's a good episode. Um, but you can come and we there we share sort of like the best things we found on the internet in a given week or whatever we feel like writing about. Um, if you just want to see me on the internet, you can find me at Mrs. Friday Next on Twitter. And if you are intrigued by the idea of a digital pilgrimage around did not, did, pride didn't, and prejudice. Didn't know what that second word was going to be. I was real nervous for a minute. <laughs> I like to keep you on your toes, Andrew. 
That's my <laughs> role here. Um, if you're interested about that, you can go to the Common Ground Pilgrimages webpage, and that is readingandwalkingwith.com, and find more information about it there. And that is um, a company that's associated with the podcast Harry Potter uh, and the Sacred Text. So if you know that whole podcast universe as a book podcast listener, you might. That is that is the people that I am working with for that. So check it out. Cool. Great. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for having me on, you guys. This was super fun. Thanks for coming and telling us about this horny taxidermy book. Yeah. Thanks to that one guy who was listening through the entire overdue back catalog and was like these episodes with margaret h willison are great <laughs> sure <laughs> because that is a hundred percent why you guys were like we should have you back on again and it's not that you were like right people think those episodes are great it was like we were all like man those were really fun to record they were we should fun. do that again yeah that's true and it's also associated with like the beginning of this this new closer well not new i guess it's like half a decade old now it's like this, new. this closer uh phase of our acquaintanceship yeah. shall yeah. we say that's a, and a cool word for friendship <laughs> Andrew and Craig basically sought me out to be a guest on the show because they're like she has a lot of Twitter followers and we know her from college Yeah, and then we became best friends you know it, and those things are possible for most people with most other people if you just reach out it's true It'd Reach out nice. and touch someone. It'd be cool. Sure. Except not literally. Yeah, like start because... a podcast first and then like use that as an excuse. Yes, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, gang. Thanks for coming to listen to our podcast and the cusses that we did this week. Uh, Sorry, we will... Buds. No, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. We knew what we were getting into. <laughs> oh, oh, I forgot to say our theme music is by Nick Larangis. Uh, information on his stuff in the episode description. Check it out. Cool. Good, good, good. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And until we talk to you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.